Yep. I'm all set. You're all set? Okay, good. All right. Hey, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for blessing us with the scriptures. We pray that you would be with us as we study the book of Esther today. I pray that we would see your hand of providence in Esther's life and in the life of Israel. Lord, would you bless your people? Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all have a nice Thanksgiving? All right, did anybody travel for Thanksgiving? Dave? You guys? Uh, all right, who, who traveled the far, farthest? Ralph and Vera, how far did you travel? Uh, about 800 miles. 800 miles? Dave, how about you? All right, so ever, did anybody have family in town or people coming to visit you? Anybody? Yep, y'all did? Uh, ben come from California? Nope. Who? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's good. Anybody else? I saw somebody else over here had some in-town family. Y'all had some family in town? Oh, that's neat. All kids, all grandkids? Oh, that's awesome. Good, good. Well, how are y'all doing on your Bible reading? Good. What are you reading right now? Anybody? First Samuel. First Samuel? Okay. Anybody else? What are y'all, what are y'all reading? Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Now, are y'all reading it together or sort of individually at the same time or just reading it together? Yeah. Together? Cool. First Corinthians? I just finished uh, James, and then I'm starting into First and Second Timothy. Uh, I, I think I, me- I mention this all the time. I'm reading the uh, chronological Bible, which I have never read be- before. I mean, I've read the Bible before, but not in the pattern that it lays it out. So um, it's yeah, it's different to me. So I guess it ends with Revelation, but other than that, a lot of the books are a little bit out of order. Uh, but that's okay. It's interesting. Good, good. All right, well, we're going to look this morning at the book of Esther. Now, how many people in this room would say that Esther is their favorite book in the Bible, top five or top ten? Somebody give me top ten. Is it a top ten favorite book in the Bible for you? Anybody? Yep, Ken? Maybe some? How about uh, top five? Not, the Veggie Tales version doesn't count. <laughs> yep. Any, is it anybody's favorite book in the Bible? Anybody? Well, maybe by the end of the this time today, it will be one of your favorite books in the Bible. All right, let's let's get started. We're going to open this morning with a quick game of Jeopardy. Does anybody love Jeopardy? Yeah. Anybody Jeopardy fans? Okay. Now remember your answer must be in the form of a question. If it is not in the form of a question, it does not count. Okay? All right. The number of times the word God is used in the Declaration of Independence. Okay? It has to be in the form of a question. Anybody? What is is three? What is zero? What is one? Okay, the correct answer is 
What is one? It is used one time in the Declaration of Independence. Okay, next one. Number of times the word God is used in Hamlet. Shakespeare's Hamlet. Anybody? Come on, buzz in. This is double jeopardy. All the values have doubled. What is three? Any other? What is two? This is not the price is right, Frank. You're not just trying to go one lower than Dave. <laughs> 28, five. The correct answer is, what is 32? 32 times the word God is used in Hamlet. Okay, how about this one? The number of times the word God is used in the English Standard Version of the Bible. Number of times the word God is used in the English Standard Version of the Bible. Anybody? Just take a guess. Anybody want to guess? Good. Dave? Dave, go ahead, man. Okay, 4,332, that's a very specific guess. Are you looking on your phone or something? <laughs> okay. Okay, anybody else? 4,332, anybody else? Other guess? <laughs> Steve, no Googling. <laughs> Ken Jennings hangs his head in shame. 1,000. Anybody? Anybody else want to guess? 1,500. The correct answer, and David was very, very close, is what is 4,354. Very good. So, good job. Okay, final Jeopardy, last one. The number of times the word God is used in the book of Esther. What is Zero. Zero. God's, the word God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. Not only is God not mentioned in the book of Esther, but there's also no mentioning of worshiping God through prayer or sacrifice. Now consider this quote. On, the surface, on its surface, the book appears to be a thoroughly secular story of Jews who continue to live in the diaspora rather than identify with the restoration community back in Jerusalem. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Now, what was the diaspora community? What's that referred to? The scattering. Why did the Jews scatter? What event caused them to scatter? Yep, the Babylonian exile, when Jerusalem was conquered, when... Uh, specifically, was Jerusalem conquered? Anybody remember? 586 B.C. The Jews are dispersed, taken into exile. And this story happens in, in Babylon amongst the Jews who did not go back with Ezra and Nehemiah and those first settlers. Right? Okay. The book of Esther met so much opposition because of its lack of explicit references to God that Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, 
lumped it together with the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, which is not part of the canon of Scripture for us, though it's used in the canon of Scripture for the Roman Catholic Church. According to Luther, I could wish they did not exist at all, for they Judaized too greatly and have much pagan impropriety. So why should we, as Christians, study what appears to be a thoroughly secular Jewish book? If Esther is, as some suggested, primarily a historical narrative explaining the origins of the Jewish festival Purim, a festival that we no longer celebrate as Christians, why should this book matter to us? Was Luther right, given the fact that God prayer, and worship are not mentioned should Esther even be included in our Bibles? That's the question. Well, what we're going to see this morning is that the book of Esther is, uh, is something that's only been hinted at so far in our study of the Bible. While at times God works in very obvious, visible ways, I listed a few of them there, the plagues, the destruction of Jerusalem, the walls of Jericho. At other times, God's work is hidden from our eyes. Sometimes we cannot see God working, even though he is working behind the scenes. While we're tempted to give more weight and significance to the visible ways in which God works, Esther teaches us that the hidden hand of God is no less remarkable and no less gracious. So God is always at work, especially in those moments where his work cannot clearly be perceived. Amen? Now, is that a comforting thought, uh, given our world and wars and rumors of wars and pandemics and crimes and politics and, and all these different things that happen in our world? It can be tempted for us to believe that God is not here that God is not operating, that Jesus is not on the throne. But Esther reminds us that he is. Okay, let's look at the historical background. The author of the book of Esther is anonymous. The author does not identify himself or herself. We don't know. While older scholarship has attempted to find multiple sources of the book, more recent study is focused more on the obvious stylistic and thematic unity of the book of Esther. There's always a move in biblical scholarship to go behind the book and say, well, maybe this, a priest wrote this part because it talks about the priests, and maybe someone in the royal court wrote this part because there's more of an emphasis on the king. We can kind of endlessly speculate about those things, but there is real obvious thematic unity in the book. Esther covers events during the reign of Xerxes, who reigned from 486 to 465 B.C., before or after the fall of Jerusalem. Someone tell me. After, again, Jerusalem fell, 586 B.C. Now, note that Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. The name Xerxes is Greek, and the name Ahasuerus is Hebrew, both are translation of a Persian name, uh, Kash Ayarsha. So that it's their, that's the Persian word, and they're kind of trying to transliterate it. It's their own languages. 
All right, Esther was probably written before Alexander's conquests, uh, somewhere in 356 to 323 BC, because of the author's knowledge of Persian court life and the absence of Greek vocabulary. So once Alexander the Great conquered the world as he knew it, uh, there was much more of, of a Greek influence on all cultures, and Esther has no influence of that at all. So we think it was probably before Alexander the Great and his, um, his exploits. Okay, notes from popular culture. If you've ever seen the movie 300, has anyone seen that movie or know of that movie? Uh, you'll note that Xerxes is the Persian king who led the assault against the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Xerxes may or may not have said, a thousand nations of the Persian Empire descend upon you, our arrows will blot out the sun. And Stelios may or may not have said, then we will fight in the shade. You guys haven't seen that movie? It's a good movie. But regardless, Xerxes was the king who married Esther. Now that just proves that even Persian kings capable of delivering some of the greatest lines in the history of male awesomeness can have a softer side as well. So Xerxes was not just a fighter of the Battle of Thermopylae. He had a tender side to his personality. Now, as previously noted, one of the main historical purposes of the book of Esther was describing the Jewish festival of Purim, which comes from the Akkadian word Puru, which means lot, as in casting lots. Have you heard that from the Bible? They cast lots for Jesus' clothing while he was dying on the cross. Uh, in this story, lot is a reference to the lots cast by Haman to destroy the Jews. Somebody read Esther 3, verse 7. So um, Purim is the festival of lots. Okay, literary analysis. Esther can be organized around three feasts. There are three feasts in the book. We have the first is the feasts of Xerxes. That's chapter 1 through 218. Then we have the feasts of Esther, which is 219 through 710. And then finally, the feasts of Purim, which take place in chapters 8 through 10. So those three uh, feasts anchor the book. Okay, let's look at the feasts of Xerxes. Vashti is deposed, chapter 1. The book of Esther begins with a great feast thrown by Xerxes, a.k.a., what's his other name? Ahasuerus. Again, if you get that confused, uh, it, you'll... Get messed up as you read the book. It's the same guy. Uh, he was the king of Persia. The feast for the nobles and military leaders lasted for 180 days, after which Xerxes held a week-long feast for the common people in the capital city of Susa. How many of you would like to have Thanksgiving for 180 straight days? How many of you would like to have Thanksgiving for just a week? One day was good for me. I'm fine. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, I don't need so long feasts. 
Okay, on the seventh day of the citywide feast, that's a smaller one, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to make an appearance so everyone could see just how attractive that she was. Vashti, perhaps taking a stand for women's rights, or perhaps just tired from 187 days of partying, refused to leave her own ladies-only party to appear before the king. Uh-oh. Vashti's refusal was a major problem from Xerxes, who's, scared, who's, going, who's going to be scared that your arrows are going to blot out the sun if you can't even get your own wife to listen to you, right? It's almost like a sitcom plot. So Xerxes forbid his wife from ever seeing him again and became the first ever star of The Bachelor. He scoured his kingdom to find a new wife who would accept his rose, attend his 187-day-long parties, and become the new queen of Persia. That's part one. Part, okay, part two, the Feast of Xerxes, Esther made queen. Now, among the potential candidates to become the new queen was a beautiful Jewish woman named Esther, an orphan who was raised by her uncle Mordecai, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem during the time of the exile. Now, somebody tell me what may or may not be significant about the fact that he was a Benjaminite. Who are some famous Benjaminites in the story of Israel? Other than Benjamin, of course. Saul, good. Anybody else? Paul. Paul the Apostle was a Benjaminite. Anybody else? Who, um, what unique role did Benjamin play uh, after Joseph was presumed to be killed? Who was he in relationship to his dad? He was the youngest and also the favorite son. So there was always sort of a unique role for Benjamin in the story of Israel. They were, they, he was the youngest son, the smallest tribe, and yet they were always uh, loyal with Judah as part of the southern kingdom. So that, that's significant. Okay, not only was Esther beautiful, she was smart and she was cunning. When it was her turn to appear before the king, she carefully followed the instructions of her handler, Haggai, she looked the right way, said the right things, and was chosen to become the new queen of Persia. Okay, Mordecai uncovers a plot against the king. Now, after Esther became queen, her uncle Mordecai discovered a plot against the king's life. Those were very common in those days. In fact, the most common way for Persian kings to die was from conspirators who killed them in the palace. That happened on a very regular basis. Now, Mordecai intervened, and both conspirators were hanged on the gallows. The gallows. Now, a quick side note, it'll be important later in the story, is this. When the text says that he was hanged on the gallows, as it does in this scene and later with Haman... It probably refers to being impaled on a stake. This was an early form of execution that later evolved into the Roman technique of crucifixion. And so the Romans did not invent crucifixion whole cloth. They actually borrowed it from the Persians. In the ancient world, they didn't use hangman's gallows to execute someone like we would expect to see in the Old West. 
So if we read that story and we, we hear the word gallows, I don't know about you, but I think about all those old Western movies and them kind of constructing a gallows and the hangman's noose. That's not what it's talking about in the book of Esther. It's a precursor to crucifixion. More on that later. Okay, the Feast of Esther, Haman's plot against the Jews, chapter 3. In chapter 3, we meet a man named Haman. Haman had a position of high authority in the king's court above all the other court officials. As such, all the king's servants would bow to Haman at the king's gate, all except Mordecai. Now, Haman was so infuriated that he decided to wipe out both Mordecai and his people, the Jews. Now, if this seems like an overreaction, it's probably traced back to a long-standing animosity between the Jews and the Amalekites. Mordecai was a Jew, and Haman was an Amalekite. Do you know who the Amalekites were? When did they make an appearance in the Bible? That's right. They were one of the nations that the Jews drove out of the promised land, and so they were regularly at war with the Jewish people. Jews didn't like Amalekites, and the Amalekites didn't like the Jews. And so when Mordecai disrespected Haman, refusing to bow down to him, it was not an event to be taken in isolation. It sort of uh, brought back all the old racial and cultural animosity between those two men, and that's why Haman reacts so severely and says, not only am I going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill all the Jewish people. Okay, there was a problem. Haman couldn't unilaterally wipe out the Jews. He needed the king's approval, but how to approach the king? Haman cast lots, Purim, remember, the lots, in order to determine the best way to hatch this plot and murder all the Jews. Okay, next scene. Mordecai persuades Esther to help. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learns of Haman's plot to kill the Jews, he goes to Esther and asks for her help. Esther is scared to help because if anyone comes to the king without being specifically summoned or called upon, there are only two possible outcomes. Permission to speak or death. Mordecai helps Esther to overcome her fears and she agrees to speak to the king. Okay, now we move on to the next section, the feasts of Esther, Esther's first banquet. In the next, in the next scene, Esther approaches the king as per her conversation with Mordecai. The king gives her permission to speak, but rather than coming right out with her request to save the Jews, she asks the king to attend a royal banquet with Haman as their special guest. Now, we come to a sleepless night and a royal reversal. Haman was feeling his oats at this point. He had been invited to a special feast by Queen Esther herself. He went home and told his whole family about it. Nevertheless, Haman couldn't get Mordecai off his mind. He went to his wife and he complained... Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting 
at the king's gate. Haman's wife suggested that he might feel better if he built a 75-foot spike with Mordecai's name on it. Mordecai agreed, and the spike was set in place. That night, the king couldn't sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing puts me to sleep like reading ancient Persian court records. So the king had the court records brought to him so that he could hear some of the memorable deeds of the kingdom read to him as he quietly drifted off to sleep. Well, it just so happened, wink, wink, that the selected passage that night concerned Mordecai. It was revealed that Mordecai had saved the king from a plot against his life and hadn't been rewarded for his valor. Now again, a quick aside, how many attempts on your life have to happen that you don't even remember one involving, King Mor- involving Mordecai the Jew, right? This guy was, had constant threats against his life and he just missed one. So there we go. Just then, Haman arrived. The king asked him what should be done uh, to the man whom the king delights to honor. Hmm. Haman, thinking the king was talking about him, because who else would the king want to honor? He's Haman, said this. Somebody read Esther 6, 8, and 9. Great stuff. Now, uh, in theological terms, this is called laying it on thick, okay? I mean, he's, he's asking for everything. He's saying, here's what you should do, because, of course, he must be talking about me. Well, the king says, great plan. Go get Mordecai and do everything that you just said. Haman is very upset about these turn of events, Not only is he not going to get to kill Mordecai, he's also the new owner of Persia's largest tetherball pole. (laughs) 75 feet and no one to die on it. Okay, Feast of Esther, Esther's second banquet, chapter 7. The time for Esther's second banquet approaches. At the banquet, Esther pours her heart out to the king. She reveals Haman's plot and Haman is terrified. The king, now angry, goes into his garden to compose himself while he considers what to do with the treacherous Haman. Haman, a master of bad timing, is now alone with Queen Queen Esther and he falls down before her begging for his life. Apparently, he was a little bit too touchy-feely in his attempts to persuade the queen because the king comes back to discover what appears to be Haman making a move on his wife. Chapter 7, verse 8. Somebody read it. Woo, not good. A helpful butler then says, hey, you know what we could really use? A giant spike. 
upon which to impale Haman. Hey, Haman, didn't you just build one of those in your yard? Haman is killed and the Jews are safe. And we move on to the third feast, the Feast of Purim, chapters 8 through 10. In the final section, the king issues an edict that officially saves the Jews from Haman's plot. The Jews then destroy all who sought their harm, and a new two-day feast is instituted, the Feast of Purim. The book closes by noting that Mordecai was now second in command to the king and was beloved by the Jews. Okay, literary techniques. The first is irony. (laughs) Dave's with us. The author of Esther delights in irony as shown by his frequent reports of reversals of fortune. Haman, in attempting to destroy the Jews, ultimately destroys himself and his own family. Haman builds a giant spike upon which to publicly execute Mordecai, only to be executed upon it himself. Haman's edict would have plundered the wealth of the Jews, but the story ends with Haman's wealth in Jewish hands. Haman, thinking that he has an opportunity to write the script for his own public glorification, inadvertently writes the script for his own public humiliation and the glorification of his greatest enemy. Haman conceals the identity of his intended victims, unaware that the identity of one victim, Esther, has been concealed from him. The writer of Esther also loves satire, especially satire directed at the Persians. Xerxes, the mighty ruler, is bested by two of his wives. So again, it's sort of uh, making a satire. He's the great king of Persia, who will shoot so many arrows that he will blot out the sun, and yet he's tricked by not one, but two of his wives. Queen Vashti was punished for refusing to appear in the king's presence by getting exactly what she wanted. She was forbidden from entering his presence. Queen Esther bested the king by changing one of his royal edicts, thereby reversing the fortunes of her people. More satire. An entire Persian bureaucracy surrounds the choice of a royal bride while a shrewd and strong young Jewish woman single-handedly controls the actions of her husband, the king. While Haman is portrayed as weak-willed and anxious, his wife, Zeresh, patiently instructs him and calmly leads their household. Okay, satire. Theological themes, the hidden hand of God. As you read Esther, you'll note the whole story is built on a series of seeming coincidences, all of which are indispensable when the story reaches its climax in chapters 6 and 7. How lucky were the Jews that... Esther was so attractive that she was chosen to be queen in an empire-wide search that Mordecai overheard an assassination plot 
that a record of Mordecai's report of the assassination plot was written down in the royal chronicles, that the king couldn't sleep and tried to get to sleep by having the royal chronicles read to him, that the king was awake enough to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded for his good deed. So again, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. The genius of Esther is that the presence of God is implied and understood throughout the story, but never explicitly mentioned. From these coincidences, we learn that the hidden hand of God is revealed in saving grace toward his covenant people. Often, we don't see God's election and providence at work in our own lives, written in bold letters on the pages of our lives. We might ask ourselves questions like, why did God put me in this city? Why did I lose my job when I did? Why did I make this friend? Why did God allow me to struggle through this time of my life? The answers may not always be clear, but we can have comfort and assurance knowing that God is in control. He is orchestrating our lives and no detail is too small as to be accidental or coincidental. He has a plan to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself and all of the seemingly insignificant details of our life are part of that grand story of redemption. Though God's sovereignty takes center stage in the book of Esther, God's divine election is not to be confused with fatalism. God is in control. He is a God who has predestined us for salvation. That's what the scripture says. And yet, his plan of salvation is enacted through the obedience of his people. Even though Mordecai acknowledged that God was in control... He still said this to Esther. Someone read Esther 4, verses 13 and 14. So God is sovereign. He can and will raise up another deliverer. And yet, Mordecai specifically calls on Esther to use her providential position in the royal court to deliver the people of Israel. So God is sovereign, and yet we still have responsibility to obey the commandments of the Lord. Uh, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for us to be fatalistic or inactive or disobedient or unconcerned about the needs of the world. We need to respond to God's grace with lives of gratitude, loving God and loving our neighbors. Okay, next. Next theological theme, God always punishes his enemies. Many in our culture have objected specifically to Esther chapter 9 as people who love the Bible even you might feel a little bit uncomfortable reading chapter 9. Thousands of people die in chapter 9. More than 75,000 people. Now, if this were mere nationalism, then we should be offended. 
If this was done in the name of political conquest, we should be offended. But the unflinching testimony of the book of Esther is that the enemies of God's people are enemies of God. And God will punish his enemies, either in this life or in the life to come. The startling, this startling fact prompts us to ask two deep questions of ourselves as we read the book of Esther. Do I st- am I an enemy of God? Do I stand in right relationship with God? Have I become part of God's people? Now, the hard truth is that we are all sinners, and sin makes us enemies of God. Therefore, the second important question is, has your debt been paid? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been connected to God through Jesus Christ? Somebody read Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. So the problem of our enmity with God, because sin makes us enemies of God, is solved through Jesus Christ, who, though he knew no sin, was counted as a sinner, dying on the cross in our place. He paid the penalty that we should have paid. He died as a covenant breaker, though he was the perfect covenant keeper, so that covenant breakers like us could be regarded as covenant keepers. Does that make sense? See, the people of the people of Israel were in themselves no better off than the people of Persia. And yet they had a God who loved them and died for them and invited them to be part of his covenant people. Okay, second deep question. If I have repented, put my faith in Jesus and have been reconciled to God through Jesus's death and resurrection, do I have any enemies? John 17, 14 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If you don't have any enemies, ask yourself, why not? Perhaps you're not clearly identifying yourself with God's people. God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. Are you of the world while not being in the world? It's an important question that all of us have to have to answer. There comes a time for all of us, like Esther, where there's a time for choosing. There's a time for publicly and vocally identifying ourselves with the people of God in spite of the great risk that that entails. Okay, next theme. God will certainly deliver his people. Now, alongside the difficult truth of God's justice is the amazing life-altering truth of God's mercy. Esther tells us that God will save and preserve his people for, for his own purposes, for his own glory. There's nothing that can stop God's plan of redemption. 
One theme that we encounter throughout the Old Testament, and here again in the book of Esther, is the sin of intermarriage with believers and unbelievers. Even our sin of adopting the world's values cannot stop God's plan. Not only will Jesus be an ancestor of Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of a Jewish man, he will come through Esther, the Jewish wife of a Persian man. Do you see? The great sin of intermarriage was not primarily a sin of uh, ethnicity or nationalism. It represented God's people compromising with those who were not God's people. And yet, two of the great ancestors of Jesus Christ were people that were deeply involved with intermarriage. Ruth and Esther both became ancestors of Jesus the King. How will God ultimately preserve us? Well, there are some hints in this text. Consider this. Esther's name is translated from a word that means star. Just as the star above Bethlehem pointed the way to our Redeemer Jesus, so also Esther, the star, points us points the way to the ultimate redemption found for us in Jesus Christ. Haman, a guilty man, was, in a sense, crucified on the cross that he built for Mordecai. A guilty man took Mordecai's place on the cross. Jesus, an innocent man, was crucified on the cross built, that we built for Barabbas. An innocent man took Barabbas' place and our place on the cross. Because of the cross, then and now, God's people have great joy and celebration. God has once and for all, through Jesus, delivered us from all of our enemies. God's hidden hand of providence is always at work, guiding every twist and turn of our lives to bring about a joyful outcome. And so, just as the book of Esther ends with a great feast, the Feast of Purim, so also all of history ends with a great feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when all of God's people will be gathered around the great table of the Lord to celebrate with Esther and Mordecai and all of God's people from all time, in all places, Jews and Gentiles, in God's kingdom. Amen? Amen? All right, any questions? That's kind of the end of what I have for this. Any questions about the book of Esther? Yes? That's a good point. It's sort of courage born of community. And even though she had that unique calling to go and speak directly to the king, that all of God's people were fasting and praying for her and lifting her up was very, very significant. Good observation. Any other thoughts, observations, questions? Book of Mm. Look at from the, you know, 
then you come up to more, the, you know, the other Syrians. You have the Babylonian captivity. Uh, you have people who literally today have sworn as their reason to be some of the Middle Eastern countries to kill every Jew in the world. And we will not be happy with land. We'll be, we'll, we will be happy when there's no Jew on the, on the land. So from World War II to the pogroms and after World War II, all over Europe to even now, there are people that are swearing, I want to kill the Jews, God's people. Unfortunately, <laughs> we are God's adopted people. Mm. And, you know, the way God has provided again and again for the Jewish people mm. before Jesus, um, mm -hmm. but even after, and, and to know that we are his children, his loved, adopted, cherished children. Mm. Yeah, that's great observations. God is so faithful and uh, delivers his people time and time again. And, you know, I, it's sort of a side note as to what Kip was saying is that um, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. It doesn't get a lot of press. Um, one of my good friends from seminary is uh, a born uh, Israeli Jewish guy, served in the, you know, Israeli army when he was 18, his daughter just finished her service. Um, he translates Christian books into modern-day Hebrew, and he's a, a pastor in, in uh, Israel. And he tells me that there are more ethnically Jewish Christians now than at any other time in the history of the world, which is something we don't really uh, hear about often. Um, but God is at work. God is at work. And uh, as Paul longed for the salvation of his ethnic uh, people, the Old Testament people of God, the Old Covenant people, so we too, as adopted children of God, New Covenant believers in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, should always be thoughtful and hopeful and uh, faithful in our ministry to our ethnically Jewish and even and religiously Jewish friends. Very important. Any other thoughts, observations? We're kind of coming to the end here. Well, why don't we uh, go ahead and close. I'll close with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll be back next week. We continue on reading the Bible and studying the Bible together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for delivering your people time and time again. Lord, even though we are undeserving, even though we are unworthy of your love, you have loved us in Christ from before the foundation of the world and our lives, though they often seem chaotic and confusing, each step in our lives is part of your beautiful plan of redemption. Thank you, Lord God, for writing us into your story. Thank you that Esther is one of our people and Mordecai is one of our people. Lord, we were formerly not a people, but through Jesus you have made us part of the people of God. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged to read your word, uh, to see your hand of providence, and be reminded that you are faithful and strong and mighty to save. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Yes. No, I have not. Okay. He rolls into town.